Will my insurance cover addiction treatment? This episode is an opportunity that Shelly had to get together with Coach Blue and Marissa Robinson on the Addict to Athlete podcast to talk about finding the best treatment that is a good fit for you, how to afford it, and what are the potential insurance options that may be available. Coach Blue and Marissa have a powerful voice in the addiction recovery community. Their mission is to establish and maintain recovery with individuals and families by promoting lifestyle changes through erasing addiction and replacing it with the things of greater value. Addict to Athlete is a nonprofit, action oriented addiction recovery program that will assist anyone touched by addiction and mental health, those in recovery as well as family, friends, and community members. Check them out at addicttoathlete.com. Enjoy. Welcome to the Illuminate Recovery Podcast. We shed light on mental health issues, mental illness, and addiction recovery. Ways to cope, manage, and inspire. Beyond the self-care we will discuss, you may need the help of a licensed professional. My name is Kurt Nider. I'm a husband, a father, entrepreneur, a handyman, and a student of life. I avoid conflict. I deflect with humor. And I'm fascinated by the human experience. And I'm Shelly Mangum. I am a clinical mental health counselor. And my favorite role of all times is grandma. I am a seeker of truth. And I feel like life should be approached with tremendous curiosity. I ask the dumb questions. I fill in the gaps. Athletes, take your mark, get set. It's time for the Addict to Athlete podcast. Hey everybody out there, Coach Blue Robinson here. I want to give everyone a special thanks and shout out for downloading, subscribing, and really sharing this podcast with anyone who might be struggling with addictions, mental health, or anything that you might feel could benefit them. We do a lot of podcasts on a lot of topics, and our athletic director, Marissa, has taken a lot of time to put these on our website, addicttoathlete.org. If you have questions about any topic, go jump on there first because I'll guarantee you after two years doing podcasts, we probably have something that will help. And of course, jump on our new team store. We have some awesome uh, really good stuff. merchandise t-shirts for our extracurricular recovery program. So jump on addict2athlete.org and you'll find out all the, uh, the neat things that we've been doing there. So, Marissa, we have a special guest in today. We want to talk a little bit about some some stuff that really, I think, gets overlooked. Why don't you introduce our, our guest today, and uh, we'll jump we'll jump headfirst into this topic. All right. So, we have invited Shelly Mangum here from Illuminate Billing. Um, I've worked with her mm, three or four years, and she has great understanding of rehabs and insurance but also the clinical piece which i love because you are a therapist as well is that right yeah that's correct i'm a clinical mental health counselor um i actually started my um internship at a substance abuse treatment here locally um Uh in utah and um and so that's where i started well it wasn't the first place i started but um i started in in residential treatment before coming to uh illuminate Awesome. So if you want to just share a little bit more about your experience and yeah, your background on how you know about the topic. So the main topic we want to cover is like, how do you find a good rehab? What do you know when you're looking at substance abuse treatment and, you know, on the insurance side, as well as how to find a good one that's yeah, because the costs, they vary so much. Mm-hmm. And you want to be able to get the best, I guess, bang for your buck, literally. And so I think Shelly can help us all kind of navigate some of the, the stickier parts of, of trying to pay for and even find good treatment, good help. Because if you're investing that much time and energy and money into it, you should probably go for something that's going to you know, really help your family and not put you into bankruptcy court. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And, and it's a, I mean, that's a loaded topic, yeah. you know, and so maybe we'll have to just... Um, address a few different pieces of that. I will tell you that um, I've been with Illuminate Billing and we advocate for people that are in substance abuse and mental health treatment, which means we work with the insurance companies. We're the go-between. And so we see all the clinical information for clients and then we relay that information to the insurance companies to get them authorized and paid for their treatment. Mm -hmm. Because that's the last thing someone in treatment wants to have to worry about is how they're going to pay for this, you know, for getting better. They need to focus on getting better, which is, is, which was, which is why our service is so valuable to a lot of facilities. 
um, e even before I started in um, with Illuminate, which I've been there since its inception, there's been a lot of um, challenges in getting treatment paid for. You know, somebody goes through treatment, the last thing they want to hear is my insurance isn't paying for any of that. Yeah. Right. You know, that's a huge stress, and that can send somebody right back into relapse. Mm -hmm. And so, um, you know, we've put a lot of things in place to try and make sure that clients get their benefits covered, and, and it, you know, goes the whole gamut. Um, I will say that uh, that coming into this industry, you, you work with some of the best of the best mm -hmm. and some of the not so best, right? yeah. some of the worst of the worst yeah. I've seen. And, and it, it blows your mind, um, you know, because there can be a lot of money in recovery. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I was just talking to someone the other day that was working for a, a, a newer facility that they're $60,000 a month. I mean, wow. that's a, you know, that's a ticket. That's not for your average person, right? Mm -hmm. Because somebody that's a professional, mm -hmm. they may not want, you know, they want to be, have anonymity when they go to treatment. Yeah. And so there's a big gamut to be aware of, but the, you know, the average person, let's say that I need treatment. Mm -hmm. And that's the thing about substance abuse and mental health, that it, it has no bounds, right? right. It, it touches everybody. Mm -hmm. And so let's say that I get myself into a place where I need treatment. Where do I go? Where yeah. do I start? Mm -hmm. And I think um, I think it's hard because someone in substance abuse has often alienated all those that are close to them. Right. Yeah. So who do they talk to and who do they trust? Um, it's a pretty tight community, and so people who are active actively in their addiction typically have others around them who maybe have gone to treatment. Mm -hmm. um, and you may or may decide that if they're still active in their addiction, that may not be the treatment program you yeah. want to go to, but that's not necessarily true. Mm -hmm. And I think, um, boy, I think that there's a lot of things, a lot of questions you can ask yourself about what kind of treatment I should go, you know, should I get residential treatment? There's a lot of controversy over whether someone should go into residential treatment right. where they yes. live there and are there for a period of time. Yeah, like 24-hour daycare. Right, exactly. Or should they start outpatient treatment? Should they just do day treatment where they're there five days a week, you know, four to five hours a day? Mm -hmm. um, you know, or even just, should I just go see a counselor? Mm -hmm. um, I know that I've, you know, in my private practice, when I was doing private practice, I worked with an individual who was, was um, had an alcohol drinking issue, right? And she was mm -hmm. struggling with that. And she was just a mom, you know, she was... Um, uh, had a career and you know was doing all those things but was very clear that she was having a drinking issue yeah. but she didn't want anybody to know about it mm -hmm. mm. right and so that shame piece and and yeah, stigma yeah the stigma if somebody knows that um, you know then it's out and then it's real right mm -hmm. you, you know Marissa and I about about two years ago um, when we kind of took over some management management at a at a treatment center, we were getting coached by a, a very dear friend of mine, coach uh, uh, coach Paul Jenkins, right? Mm -hmm. Live on purpose, and he broke this down for us one day. And it made perfect sense. He said, you know, as you guys are getting into this, he's like, what do you truly get paid for? And we went through all the aspects of the program, and we had some great things on the board. But then he circled two things: group therapy one-on-one -on -one therapy everything else is just fluff and it was wild when i started realizing like oh my gosh are we spending enough time one-on-one -on -one individually because they have all these other things they've got you know, rec activities they've got you know um you know personal meditation all this stuff he said but you're only getting paid for two aspects and it really kind of put in my mind's eye the importance of, of what we're really doing, right? You could have the most amazing facility, state-of-the-art, you know, gym equipment, all these amazing things, but really, Massages and yeah, really all that is, is fluff to get you in front of a therapist or counselor. Sort of, sort of. <clears throat> and, and here's the thing that, that it kind of irks me, right, is the insurance companies will only pay for what they call quotation marks mm -hmm. clinical treatment right clinical treatment is something is treatment that's done in front of a a, a master's level therapist mm -hmm. you know time in front of the doctor doing med management it's also could be time in front of a sudsy mm -hmm. time in front of a rec therapist processing mm -hmm. 
right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. But um, and, and any of those kinds of credentials, music therapy and art therapy, someone who's credentialed in that. And licensed. And licensed. Yeah. You can get paid for that because you have a clinical director who can sign off and say, yes, this is part of their treatment plan. Mm-hmm. So there's more. But you cannot um, ignore the fact that there's a whole person standing in front of you. Right. And, I mean, you guys run Addicts to Athletes. You mm-hmm. know how important the exercise piece is. You can't ignore that. You mm-hmm. can't ignore... Um, you know, doing some of those skills training, mm-hmm. right? How often does somebody come into treatment and has no idea how to how to even find an apartment or yeah. a place to life live skills. and sign a contract? Yeah. yeah, those basic life skills to take care of themselves. And so you can't ignore that stuff. Right. And so it's important. But yeah, will the insurance pay for it? No. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They won't. Yeah, see? Yeah. And I think that's the dilemma. I, I really do. And I think... I don't know, uh, maybe for, for you know, to humor some of the listeners that don't know anything about what we're talking about, let's go over some of that, not just the criteria, but maybe even the levels of care, because it, it varies differently. Like you said, should someone start in residential treatment? Should someone start in, you know, an outpatient? You know, I have my own theories, my own ideas, but those are for another podcast. Um, let's start with if you have a, a loved one who is... Like on the verge of, of, of maybe even getting to the point where death is imminent. Um, and they get assessed. Everyone starts with an assessment, right? Marissa, you do assessments. Yeah. What, do you, what questions do you ask? And how do you place people? How do we yeah. place people? So a lot of times, you know, sadly, it's kind of subjective. Uh, I wish there was better assessments to say ABC equals D. But there's not. So a lot of times... Information gathering. Yeah. And I try to do my best to be very, you know, what is best for the client and not, you know, addressing, which a lot of facilities, they'll say what is best for us. You know, if we say that they need residential care, then all of a sudden we can get a lot more money than if they need outpatient care. Um, So it's, I think it's really being careful on who does the assessment when you find out, are they a licensed professional? Do they work for the facility that you're, there's going to be some, you know, double-sided issues there if that's where you're at, rather than getting just a very general, this is what's happening. But you start with... A non-biased assessment, is that what you're saying? Yeah. (laughs) But starting with you know, what substances are they abusing? How often, how long have they been abusing it? How is it affecting their life? And then you go through multiple things, you know, is housing an issue, job and employment, transportation, are all of these things and, you know, kind of rating them and, you know, issues of, you know, is there potential for relapse? Is there serious potential for relapse? What's their support system at home like? And within the last several years, we've created this new scale to rate people. It used to be part of the, you know, the DSM coding and whatnot, mm-hmm. but now it's turned into to the, um, um, the, the ASAM, ASAM, right? The ASAM, the ASAM criteria. So if you're looking at someone that's, that's, that's using to a point where, you know, death and, and all kinds of crazy things, you know, even pregnancy, IV heroin use, and it looks as though they're going to be needing some some you know some bigger eyes on them. They typically range higher on the ASAM scale. Mm-hmm. So so Shelly, t- if you can talk a little bit about the ASAM scoring, so that the people can be aware of what it is. Like the higher, like the three point five, I think is residential. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, there's even higher than that, which is like hospitalization. Yeah. Um, yep. So once you get an ASAM score, because everything that Marissa does on the assessment pulls information to score, and it's, it really is by self-reporting. There's not a lot of like medical testing or anything. It, it mm-hmm. goes by verbal communication, right? Right. Well, and here's the beauty of the ASAM is that not everybody that many people that come into treatment aren't telling all the truth, right? I've I've noticed that. They're going to minimize or they're going to make themselves look like they don't Mm -hmm. have as much of a problem because, you know, we're stigmatized now. We don't, you know, that that stigma of if if something's wrong with me, then, you know, I'm shamed and I'm internally something, you know, I can't be fixed. Right. Mm -hmm. And so the beauty of ASAM is that there are assessments and other pieces. So ASAM is a six dimension criteria you're looking at what are their their withdrawal symptoms. And then that's probably what the insurance is gonna look at the very most is are they withdrawing? Do they need medication to withdraw? Mm-hmm. And that, that monitoring, and is the, is the drug of choice 
um, such like alcohol or benzos to where they're really going to have an adverse effect yeah. during their detox. They could die during yeah. detox. Right. So we're going to be looking at that. And there are assessments that you can utilize, which I think are really important. Siwa's uh, score and the cow's score, one's yeah. for alcohol, one's for opiates. How severe are the withdrawal symptoms? Um, and this requires, you know, you might think that you're prompting a client, and this is really tough because the client has lived with that kind of withdrawal yes. a whole a long time, right? Yeah. And they'll they don't understand just how uncomfortable they are and how yeah. sick they are. They don't recognize what normal is. Correct. So when you ask them, you know, how's your sleep? They're like, eh, good. Okay. So I usually will have to get really specific. How many hours do you sleep? Yeah. Do you wake up and feel rested? because they haven't slept or they have because they've passed out from alcohol, but they don't wake up and feel rested. They don't, they've forgotten what normal is. It's exactly true. And so there's some education that has to happen there as no, really. And, and the CWAS and the cows score really has some very specific identifiers that they can't hide mm-hmm. their blood pressure. Right. Yeah. You know, do they have goosebumps? Do, tremors. Are, are they tremoring? Are they mm-hmm. sweating? You know, are they having dreams at night about using mm-hmm. all of those kinds of things that they can minimize some of it, but some of it you see it's visual. Right. Yeah. Right. And so you take away some of that, some of that, that part of it, mm-hmm. um, the subjective, you know, yeah. yep, the subjective part. Um, uh, the next level is the medical piece, which means you need a doctor. Have they seen a doctor and has a doctor passed off that they are even yeah. fit for treatment? Right. Because there's a times that a client will come in for residential treatment mm-hmm. and they need detox. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They full on go into a seizure or something like yeah. that. Has a doctor assessed them? Um, that's an important piece. And, and there are medications to help ease the discomfort yeah. and of withdrawal. And how close is that med- are the medical professionals? There's some residential treatment who offer... Um, an MD and a doctor, but they don't live there. They're not there close. They don't have a 24-hour nurse. Right. And so often, if they and, need yeah. some of that, they're but, going to need a higher level of care from detox or a hospital. And where often they have that doctor hours. is doing four or five different treatment centers, and so sometimes it's just a little bit of a delay there too. Yeah, it, it, that's true, and that's it can be challenging. And the other challenge for a residential treatment center is how do we pay for a doctor to be there twenty four seven? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And now here's something else to keep in mind is that residential treatment is not a medically managed level of yeah. care. Three point five is a clinical. Yeah. Managed level of care. Yeah, it's right means, there on on the, on the line, border, mm-hmm. right? Because yeah. if you go up to three point seven, that's medically managed. That means it does have to have a doctor. It has to have a nurse twenty four seven. Yeah. Um, those facilities, if they're at least JCO accredited, right? There's accrediting mm-hmm. bodies that mm-hmm. make sure that their their policies and procedures are effective. Mm-hmm. Um, that they're required to have a plan for treating somebody that's that has a medical seizure or a medical issue. Yeah. Um, so you might want to know what's that plan, right? Because mm-hmm. it's a good question to ask. You know, what do I do? You have an RN during the day. It's starting mm-hmm. more and more to where facilities, good facilities, will have RNs during the day. And if yeah. they're contracted with insurance companies, they're requiring it. Mm. They're requiring some sort of a an LPN in the night mm-hmm. and RN during you know eight hours during the day. So we're starting to see that become more and more of a thing. Mm-hmm. Right. And so listeners, that's 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 one of those boxes to check is what is the medical like I guess availability in a treatment center that you're getting? Is it a contracted doctor? Is it a, is it a nurse on site? Is it a combination of both? These are great, I guess, it's great information for people to start looking right now. So that was the thing, Shelly, that, that kind of was interesting to me. When I worked at the county, it was very different. We were outpatient. You know, our residential was, was over, you know, the government, right? And so they had all this stuff. When I got into the private market, I didn't realize, um, I'm not going to say shortcuts, but just some of the things that were, that were just not considered, like, like the doctor on site. The other thing that I was kind of curious about is, in order, when, when they combined mental health and addiction and then put it into that medical model, that means that even us as therapists need to report on, on medical issues. Is this person sleeping through the night? So night watches you're going through. Is this person restless? You know, and, and so many things. I noticed so many times that when they'd go in and do room checks, they would just make sure that, that, that a body was there, right? Mm-hmm. And they weren't trained on how to look for that kind of stuff. And so really a lot of stuff, we were just, again, going off off the fly. But the thing that bothered me was that we had to we had to chart more of the the bad than the good. Mm-hmm. You know, it's all in how you write, you write it. I did, you know, it's, it's, it's to a point where I'm thinking, all right, we've got to be careful with this because when this person is medically sound to go, 
but mentally and emotionally not, what do we do, right? Because that's where the step-down process comes, mm-hmm. you know? And so I know that the research about the longer in residential, the better you're going to do. But is that really true? Because I think the sooner you can get them back in, you know, to society with their families within that system with some good help, some good monitoring, Support. maybe even like at a level, what they call it, what, PHP, right? Where it's, mm-hmm. PHP stands for? It's day treatment. Day Partial treatment. hospitalization is what it stands for, but it's really day treatment, yeah, same. Like a nine to five. Right. right. So you're moving from residential, which is 24-7, mm-hmm. down to that PHP or into, yeah. you know, IOP or GOP, intensive outpatient, general outpatient. Yes. Um, I, I just think there's so much variation there because really we're now looking at medical stuff and medically, you know, after a you know, few weeks, you know, they could be detox, they could start doing okay, mm-hmm. but emotionally, mentally, they're not, they're not there. Right. Well, and that's a great question too. It's something that when I, when I read the documentation that comes in for a client, I often look and go, why isn't the doctor or the nurse assessing for these medical pieces, their mm-hmm. appetite? their um, you know their sleep and how they're feeling and are they having dreams right somebody needs to be assessing for that and it ends up falling on the therapist who isn't that's not your that's yeah. not your field of your scope of practice or right? it's on yeah. the psych techs just yeah. you know the st- the regular general staff who many don't have any education or training or maybe new in recovery themselves in a lot yeah. of cases exactly mm-hmm. they don't know what to look for and so it's an important piece because the insurance companies are looking at the medical piece right and the client is a person and if we're not addressing the medical side of the client effectively then we're really not doing our part and, yeah. And then you can focus on the mental health. Here's the thing that I don't see happen very often is a client will come in, they'll detox, they'll get into that better space. Um, but then we can tell right up front that it's mental health is right. really the thing that's driving the substance abuse. Mm-hmm. And what we don't see is the treatment plan shifting. We don't see it yeah. shift and show, yeah. hey, you know, they're medically, they're more stable now, mm-hmm. but now we're going to address the mental health that's really driving this, and here's the elements. Mm-hmm. Yes. And to your to your credit, Blue, is yes, we I, I'll go into a facility every day and say, I don't want you to tell me how good the client is doing. Yeah. I'm sorry. I don't want to see that in their notes because we're not going to get authorized if you tell me how good they're doing. They're yeah. not here because they're doing good. They're here because they're having some major issues that are life-threatening, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. That yeah. takes lives every day. And so I need you to tell me how they're not functioning. Exactly. I need you to tell me how we're going to get them to function. I need you to give me some measures of how we'll know. How do we know when they're at a place where they can step down? Right. Yeah. Right. And the facilities that are better at doing that, um, they get more days. Yeah. Because they can they can gauge it and say, look, yeah, they're more stable medically, but now it's we're going to treat their PTSD. Right. We're going to treat their trauma or we're going to yeah. treat their anxiety and depression. Right. Well, it's a paradigm shift and it's very different for clinicians to start looking at it through those lenses because obviously from the moment they walk in there, we want to we want to boost their their emotional stance so they know they can do this. We want to you know praise them and all this kind of stuff. And though so it really is, we don't want to keep you know, chopping at the tree. You know, we want to start to let it heal. But I think you can do that at the same time, knowing that they're there for a reason too, right? And so I think part of that when when we get caught into into you know us being that, you know, clinicians, being doctors, and all this other stuff, the hardest thing for me was when I had to do a call with the doctor and insurance company. There was one time when I, I had to make a call. Um, I can't remember what you call those. So when when the therapist calls the oh, doctor, like a peer-to-peer peer-to-peer, review where you yeah. got the medical doctor. Oh, Shelly, there's not one time when I didn't <laughs> sit on a peer-to-peer, and I'm like. If we discharge this person right now on you know New Year's Eve, they will die. And I remember this one client, and I was like, and I had I did I had so much it's to go over. Really good evidence, yeah. But it was no medical, and yeah. so you know on paper he'd been there for you know all 65, 70 days, and they're like, well, medically he looks fine, and every time they would let him go, and it took me a while before I realized they're not looking for what I'm doing in my office. They're looking for what's going on the rest of the time. The, you know, the medications, are they working, you know, sleeping, all the stuff that, that you know, they, can, they can measure. Yeah, mm-hmm. they want, that's exactly right, is the insurance wants measures because everything that you tell them is subjective. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, their mental health, that's subjective and, and they're not so sure that somebody should be in treatment for, in RTT treatment or residential treatment yeah. for just a mental health. And I right. say just a mental health, right? Because 
because that's severe. They want to be, you know, if you're going to be in residential, you better be suicidal. Mm-hmm. You better not be able to function. You can't shower. You can't eat. You can't. Yeah. Right. But you're right. They're looking at those measures. Are you taking vitals? And do those vitals show, right? Because there's assessments mm-hmm. that they're still detoxing because their vitals are over 80. You know, their pulse is over 80 and their vitals are elevated. Right. Things like that. Um, but you can say, look, this person, they can't, they can't engage in a healthy relationship. They can't, they don't have a support network, but those things, the insurance doesn't give a lot of weight to. Well, to a certain degree. I think insurance, because they've been medical for so long, and it's, it makes sense because it's easier to understand measurable assessments and outcomes. Yeah. That's where they get stuck rather than understanding there's still issues with mental health where people shouldn't just be released all the time. Yeah. I'll probably kick myself for saying this, but to a certain degree, I know that, that, the insurance companies to a certain degree are correct as well mm-hmm. because what if we hold on to these guys for too long right and if you have the same quality of care in an outpatient program mm-hmm. that you do on an inpatient program that they could function even better because then you've got even more data to do therapy and counseling with at the same time yeah. getting them back on their feet because the scary thing too is that I've seen that rotating door with, with clients that just keep coming back and keep coming back. And I'm like, then, you know, uh, this is just my own philosophy. If we see, th- if we see clients, you know, you know, multiple times, it's time to refer them somewhere else because we're not giving them obviously what they need. They need something different. And that's not a, that's not a, that's not a Popular. great thing for the bank account. But on the same breath, I'm like, then you're not, we're not doing the work. We're missing something that maybe another program designed with a different yeah. kind of modality and could. In years in this industry, there's a lot of people that become institutionalized. They only feel safe when they're in that 24-hour care. Unless they're in residential, they'll relapse. And so it has to, it's, it's such a balance and a dance. Oh, it is. It reminds me of a client. So early on, I was working at a halfway house for women coming out of prison. Mm-hmm. And I was meeting with these women, and oh my gosh, just <laughs> it was such an honor to hear the stories yeah. and to be part of that story. And, and one lady, she said to me, she's like, I get out in a couple of days, and I don't know if I can do it. I've been in prison so much of my life yeah. that I don't know that I can live outside. And she would even come and see me after she was, you know, in, in her own apartment, mm-hmm. in her own place. And she's like, yeah, I don't know if I can maintain this. And she says, the sad thing is my son's doing the very same thing. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He's following the very same path. And so you, it's a valid question is, yeah. you know, we institutionalized people before, you know, a long time ago, years ago. And, and the idea is that we're not going to do that anymore because it's not healthy for them. And so it's this fine line of, you know, when are they ready to go out and face the world again mm-hmm. and still be in treatment, right. mm-hmm. but they have to go back out because a residential treatment a facility or environment is super protected, yeah. right? They yeah. they have 24-7 access to people that are helping them and monitoring them, and, yeah. and it's all about recovery, and it's protected. And then mm-hmm. I heard this said one time, this guy, you know, he was put on the bus, you know, he's finished with his RTC treatment, he was put on the bus and sent home, and the bus dropped him off in front of a bar. Yeah. yeah. And he went in, because yep. he didn't know yeah. how to say no. He didn't know how to not do that, right? Yeah. And so, yeah, there's a, it's a fine line as yeah. to, you know, should they be in RTC? How long should they be there? And if they've been there time after time after time, I mean, you ask the question, do they need something else? Or, mm-hmm. you know, where's their motivation or where's their capacity? Yeah. You know, have we started where they need to start or where they're at? So there's lots of questions and I don't have all the answers. Yeah. But, 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 you, but you know, those issues exist. And I think part of that too is, you know, the one thing I noticed, the disconnection between our residential program and then like our outpatient is that we wanted the consistency in the relationships to stay the same. And so our outpatient attempted to practice the same philosophy that we had at the residential, but it's two separate entities and they couldn't do it because you don't have 24-7 care. Yeah. And so there's a time where they're going to be alone, yet they've been promised that, no, you're going to get the same treatment down there at our outpatient that you will hear. And it's impossible. And to a certain degree, we almost set them up to fail because we were saying, you can count on us. We're always going to be here. Yeah. That's not true. Mm-hmm. But there was, yeah, too much once yeah. on the staff. But that's the thing too, right, is you get into sober living and you get into outpatient and whatnot. And I think that's where the real work begins. I think the stabilization should happen in a detox and residential. Mm-hmm. And personally, I think they should be shorter. And I think we should put more effort and more time and energy into those outpatient programs to help you know take the training wheels off before we shove them down the hill on the bike. Mm-hmm. Um, 
talk a little bit about maybe just the difference in time because I wanted people that, that maybe have a loved one that is facing maybe court. And we know that court's going to you know, recommend treatment. If you're in residential, obviously that's 24-7, right? If you, when you leave residential, you, you get into this interesting pool, you know, PHP, IOP, GOP. Would you mind sharing like the requirements of time? How many hours does it, like does clinical it require? Hours okay. that given. Yeah, because I, I really think that would benefit a lot of people that don't know kind of what all that means, the commitments they're going to have to make. Yeah, and, and it's interesting because residential is 24-7. You're being monitored. You're monitored while you're sleeping. You're monitored everywhere you go. But um, And there's really not, it's an interesting piece because we say, at least in my industry, we say you better have at least 30 hours of clinical during RTC. And right. clinical meaning with the therapist. Is that a week? Doctor. 30 hours a week? A week. Okay. Yeah. Um, and when they step down to PHP, then it becomes, and we usually recommend, it used to be that they would do PHP seven days a week. But what they were really doing is giving them RTC treatment and they were still living there and they never did get to go out and experience you know, partial hospitalization. Your thoughts on that, good or bad? Good and bad. Okay. Um, depends on the person, right? Because somebody might need more treatment. They might need more stabilization. And somebody else might be ready to go. But but which one? Which yeah. one is it? And I'll tell you right now, insurance companies have wised up to that pretty quick, and they call it stratification. Mm. And if they see that you're giving them, you know, 24-7 care at a PHP authorization, they won't pay for it. They'll, mm. they'll ask those medical records and they won't pay. They want them to be moving forward. They insist that they be moving forward. So they've just said, we're not going to pay for that. So they're, they're monitoring that. They're watching. And we will often recommend to a facility, please just, you know, even they can, they can reside there. The insurance mm -hmm. company cannot tell them where they live. Mm -hmm. But you have to let them leave, leave. Have you have to let them experience life and then yeah. come back and go say wow this is really hard and triggers and cravings and come back exactly. so we can work through go it. get a part-time job i mean you know mm -hmm. some of them have never really held a job for more than a month at a time so mm -hmm. go get a job and now let's talk about the struggles you're having and at that this is job. a great time to start that yeah, yeah. and so, how many hours is php so php clinical is typically work. 20 hours okay. a week of clinical so five days a week, four hours a day. Mm -hmm. You know, I've heard some that say you've got to be in six hours a day, a more high intensity, but generally speaking, it's 20 hours a week, mm -hmm. um, five days a week. And, and we recommend don't do it on the weekend. Like let them go be with let family, them let them go, yeah. you know, into the community and do their things so that you're showing the insurance company. Yes, we are helping them step down. I like We're that. It, the it transition. Takes, yes. It yeah. takes a lot more effort, but the client would benefit immensely right well they can and and that's the tricky piece is are they going to go use again mm -hmm. which which relapse is part of recovery and right so you know let's come back at it and try which again. means if they come back to the residential program you know having had haven't been high what's that going to do to the rest of the group yeah. and so typically what happens they get kicked out and it's like oh my gosh come on right come on yeah well and, and why do they have to step up they relapsed. Now they're coming back. Mm -hmm. That doesn't mean they, you know, they went all the way to rock bottom again. Yeah. yeah. They they have some skills. Let's see if we can incorporate those skills and keep yeah. them at PHP. And if they can't maintain sobriety, then we look at stepping them up, right? right? So I think sometimes we do it too quickly. Yeah. But there is safety factors there and can we express those safety factors to the insurance company? Mm -hmm. And then to the question and then after PHP, you know, they're there for a time. Maybe that's 20 days, maybe it's 30 days, maybe it's longer, mm -hmm. um, and they start to acclimate and get good at some of the life skills they have to incorporate, then they can step down to IOP, which I've seen some transition, and I kind of like this transition. They'll, you know, for three or four weeks, they'll do IOP at five days a week, three hours a day. The minimum is nine hours a week. So for intensive outpatient IOP, nine hours a week. Nine of, hours a week. Clinical the, with a licensed therapist or counselor. Face to face. Yeah. Clinical. Mm -hmm. Yeah, group, but with a master's level or SUDSE or, you know, someone mm -hmm. with some credentials. Um, nine hours is the minimum. Typical IOP is three days a week, right? Mm -hmm. You're coming three days a week, you know, maybe three nights a week, three hours at a time. Mm -hmm. yeah. And you're, you're getting a job, right? You're now starting a full time job mm -hmm. or you've gone back to be full time mom and you're just coming in to kind of, you know, continue your recovery, continue practicing these skills. Cause it's like, um, I like to use the analogy of a rocket, right? Mm -hmm. A rocket going to the moon takes 
I'm throwing out this randomly, 90% of its energy, 90% of its power just to get it off the ground and right. out of the atmosphere. Changing our patterns and behaviors is like that. It takes so much. And then after we've worked and we've worked mm. and we've worked, we can finally see the fruits of all of that effort, yeah. right? Mm -hmm. And so change is hard. We need to continue in treatment. And, you know, and then once they've done IOP, you know, and they get to where they're, you know, three hours, three, three days a week, three hours a time. Mm -hmm. And that's, you know, they're doing really well. Then they can step down to general outpatient or routine outpatient, which is, you know, I'm going to maybe do an individual therapy maybe once a week. I'm going to come to group once or twice a week. Yeah. Um, you know, I'm stepping down. Right. I'm stepping back. And then, you know, I would think you would want to see their involvement in some sort of a social, um, a socially sponsored yeah group of some yeah. kind it doesn't necessarily have to be addiction or aa or yeah. something like that you know even, there's lots you of know, spirituality and going to church yeah. and having some other connection with other individuals yeah. yeah i used to tell people when i was in private practice i'm like you need a support network go find a church i don't even care what church it is yeah, yeah. but there's good people there that will help you go find yeah. some sort of a support network mm -hmm. I, yeah. I absolutely agree you need somebody you, and this is the piece, this is where healing really happens is when somebody is seen and heard and yeah. understood. Right. You know, and when you can really get into that person and understand what's going on and reflect that back to them, then their whole body just relaxes and they can go, mm -hmm. oh, yeah. somebody finally gets it. They feel safe enough to yeah. then, yeah. And look you, at it work. requires another person to do that, mm -hmm. at least one, if not a whole multitude of them. Right. Absolutely. Yeah. Right. Well, and that brings up an issue that I've noticed in quite a few private programs, and that's the lack of family and, and support system interactions. You know, there's just no time. And I'm like, I, I haven't I don't know of a program that that weighs heavily on family involvement. Maybe they get a call. Maybe they do get to do a session or two. But there's not a lot of interaction with them. And, you know, we tried many times to get things launched and whatnot, and it would be minimally, you know, like attended and it would dissolve and die. And I don't, I think there to be a lot more effort on that too. But again, how does it fit into those hours? And is that the greatest bang for your buck? Because yeah. all that stuff takes a lot of energy and a lot of time, right? Um, how important you know, is it for family members to know what they can and can't do, what they should be asking for? Yeah. And, you know, because eventually, hopefully the goal is to get that loved one back into that family system. So be it mm -hmm. healthy and, and safe. Well, it's, it's a tough question because in some situations, the family's just not safe. They shouldn't be, mm -hmm. you know, they shouldn't be engaging with the family. But by and large, they usually have a, a family that loves them. Mm -hmm. And that family has an interesting dynamic that's often dysfunctional, yeah. right? Often, not always, but often mm -hmm. dysfunctional. If the family is not in some sort of treatment and is not being exposed to what is addiction, what are the patterns of addiction, what do I need to know about that? Yeah. How do I love somebody but hold boundaries with somebody that's in their addiction? Mm -hmm. how, yeah, how do I communicate my feelings and what should this look like? <clears throat> if you don't have that engagement, then they're going to go back into that family and they're going to take on, they're going to do, right, that client's going to do all of the treatment and all of the healing and they're going to go back to a family unit where they're looked at the very same way they did before they went to treatment. Yeah. And they they're going to huge leaps and bounds of improvement. Oh, yeah. yeah. You know, I've always, but now they have all these yeah, opinions I've, and these thoughts yeah, and they want to share. I've always like, compared what? it to like being in a play. A yeah. family has a certain cast they have. They have certain, you know, parts that they share and they talk. And when so-and-so says this, I say this. And so then that person in recovery leaves and they get a whole new set of words. Mm -hmm. They get a whole, whole new actions to speak out and then they're put back in the exact same play doing a different part. Yeah. And everyone's like, what is going on here? Yeah. How, how does this work? You don't say that when she says this. You have a part to play, and you're not playing that part. I love the way you say <laughs> that, and it's exactly right. It's, it throws everything off mm -hmm. if the family is not part of that dynamic. Um, you know, I've seen adolescents go to treatment, and if the families are not part of it, that adolescent is not going to go back home and get better. Exactly. They're not, because the family dynamic is part of the problem. Right. Mm -hmm. um, but families don't want it, right? They, what they're doing, and, and here's the sad thing is that you know, someone in their addiction is really burning bridges. Mm -hmm. Right. And they've really used and abused those relationships and the family's happy to have them gone a lot. Yeah. And so that creates this dynamic. That person knows that. And mm -hmm. how do you bridge that gap? How do you heal it? Do I think it's important? I think it's vital. Yeah. If the family, I mean, that's, 
you know, that's your, your solid. That's the piece that never will change. Yeah. But if you can't utilize the family, you've got to have somebody. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I have a, I have a really hard question. I hope you can, you can help me understand this. Let's shift gears into uh, maybe an individual who starts out in residential that needs or has been prescribed MAT, medicated assisted therapy. Um, many times I've seen them get started on, on MAT, but then once they, they run the gamut, all of a sudden they realize, oh, my insurance doesn't cover this or these problems now I need to be taking this medication, but on this side of treatment, I can't afford them. Yeah. What have you seen and what, I guess, you know, do, you, do you know about which direction these families, these people should go in trying to figure out medication-based you know, treatment where they're going to need it, but maybe their insurances and whatnot don't cover. I mean, how do they, do we set them up for failure if we put them on things that, that we know they're not going to be able to take outside of there be, but because it's easy and convenient right now? I mean, there's a lot of care that needs to be taken on that path. Yeah, and, and that's a big one because there's a lot of evidence that says medication management. I mean, even in the addiction world, right, there's mm -hmm. some stigma against being medication man yeah. against oh. doing it because yeah. if you're on a medication, you're not sober. Yeah, we've heard that one before. Yeah. Um, we don't agree with that. No, we yeah. don't agree with that because that's the same way as saying somebody who's depressed, clinically depressed, shouldn't be on a medication, and that is yeah. not true, right? Yeah. Absolutely. No mm -hmm. one would question that. Yeah. No one would question a diabetic taking insulin. Right. You, you wouldn't know? even think twice about it. Or, you know, getting the common cold or the flu. Yeah, you're going to take a few days. You're going to take mm -hmm. some cold medicine. You know, you're going to make yourself feel comfortable. Mm -hmm. Well, it's the same thing. There, you know, there are things that you can take that have been trust tested and tried and true that help people stay sober. Right. They help the cravings. They help all sorts of things in, in that avenue. They help, you know, that if you do end up relapsing, it doesn't have the same effect. It yeah. won't kill you. And so those medications can be vital. You know, you've got to work with your doctor as to whether those are maintenance doses to where they go on for years and years and years and maybe your whole life. Right. Some people or, need that. And they do. Or whether it's short term. Those yeah. are questions you've got to talk to the doctor about. But I think it's an injustice to not use medication management. To your question, um, to my understanding, those clients, unless the facility is somehow paying for that medication, which I don't think is... Very common, yeah. I don't think is um, is talked about, yeah. But I think is unethical, um, maybe for some of the same reasons. But you know, just like you can't pay for someone's premium, yeah. Um, it might be vital that they have those medications and the facilities pay for those. Um, but yeah, then it, it, then it, what do they do when they get out? Exactly. You know, and so you've got to like say Vivitrol, which is a great medication. Yeah. It's being yeah. used a lot. You can do it once a month, and it's a shot, so right. that that person can't abuse it. Mm -hmm. You know, they can't decide not to take it one day. Fantastic medication and incredibly expensive. Exactly. Yeah. Incredibly expensive. Blows my mind. Yeah. Um, you know, I would hope that one day we'll get a generic and it'll be more affordable. Yes. Um, a I lot of these. I, I don't know if you've seen it, but I have started to see a lot of grant programs coming down mm. because of the opioid epidemic that there are a lot of facilities now being able to lessen the price or you know do a lot with the grant money for you know vivitrol and some other types of medication good questions which I'm really to ask. grateful but you yeah you've but, got to call around and ask but i think mm. every day there's probably more of them and i hope that that ball really really starts rolling yeah that's good to know but yeah but if, if they leave and they don't have the means and they run out at day 30, mm -hmm. then what, right? Yeah. What do they do? And who's there to help them? Who's here to, there to advocate for them then? And that's why it's important to stay in treatment and, and maybe find some solutions, right? And I love the idea that I hadn't heard that, that there's grants out there for it and, it's, and for good reason. Yeah. Good reason. Um, I know that I've also seen facilities that will buy Vivitrol specifically in bulk, mm -hmm. and then they will administer those shots for the clients. Um, and that I would think that... Um, under those hmm. situations, it might be a little bit cheaper. So yeah. facilities, you know, any facilities that are listening could maybe consider that as an option. Right. Yeah. Right. So one thing we've noticed, too, is because MAT still seems to be kind of like the, the new day of dawn. Um, I've seen treatment centers that don't understand it or maybe don't agree with it that then rapidly, you know, taper, uh, taper them. And they're like they're always shooting for that abstinence-based lifestyle, and we've learned through sad experience that that's not always the best practice. 
Um, are you seeing more treatment centers or more insurance companies kind of wanting, you know, maybe, or did some change to like say, hey, let's work with what this client needs instead of like what you want, you know, in, with your own philosophy? Yeah, um, absolutely. Um, insurance companies are um, not, not only encouraging MAT, but if a program is not engaged in MAT, you rarely see them get contracted with that insurance company. Right. Um, yeah. You know, they may not come out and tell you that, but some of the criteria is that you're that you have the options of doing MAT and it is part of your program. Mm -hmm. um, uh, um, I will say that um, the stigma that is there about taking that medication is is there. I think it's probably a money piece more than anything mm -hmm. because I do see some facilities engage in it, and I talk to a lot of facilities about they want to know that this client is seeing the doctor every week. Right. Mm -hmm. That doctor is doing something for those clients, right? Mm -hmm. They, yeah. If there is medication that can help them to maintain sobriety, then they need to be having that conversation and it needs to be documented. Is the client denying it? Are you educating that client on, on the, the benefits, benefits of that yeah. medication? Are you helping them understand how this can help them stay sober and isn't that the goal? Mm -hmm. So that they can continue to function and continue mm -hmm. in their values and, and quality of life. Um, I don't see it being implemented as much as I would like to see it. Right. Well, and I've seen it a lot in residential and then quick taper out or they say no you can do it out but then they go to sober living or halfway houses and no one will let them have it yeah and i'm like this is the time that their cravings and triggers are really kicking in mm -hmm. the time that they really need it i remember we had a client who was on a pretty high dose in residential of um suboxone mm -hmm. and had tapered down but was still on the lower dose went to outpatient and then wanted his dose upped and we were like is he trying to just get high again but now, years later, I'm recognizing, no, he was having tons of triggers and cravings. He's living life in frustration and stress, and that made perfect sense. Hopefully, he was work, you know, working with the doctor as to why he wanted his Suboxone raised, you know, mm -hmm. because that's a great time that that may be necessary. Yeah, and you know? I think something that gets missed a little bit is, so in a residential treatment, you've got a, a medical provider right there that sees the clients. Yeah. I think it's a mistake to not transition that person to a private practice person, to a, to a, what do they call it, primary care physician. Yeah. Their agree. own physician. I agree. Yes, that they are creating a relationship with that knows them long term, that's going to be with them long term and that can help them navigate, this medication's really expensive, let's try something else. Yeah. And somebody that specializes in, in addiction medicine, right? right. That would yeah. be important. And so are we doing that or are we keeping them with our medical provider and how are we helping them? Because again, that's a life skill that they've never probably been able been exposed to. Yeah. Right. And they um, won't be able to stay with the facility's medical provider forever. Right. You know, Because they don't typically see people on an outpatient basis, yeah. right? They're only seeing people in the treatment center. Mm -hmm. um, and so, yeah, I don't, and, and I granted, it's not something you write a note about. So right. maybe it's happening more than I'm mm -hmm. seeing, but I, I think there's a gap there. Well, yeah. I've seen it firsthand and it's, it's always that way. And then there's there's that, you know, understanding that that uh, if you move to outpatient you can't see the residential doctor but then where do they go yeah. right i mean so it's like there's got to be more consistency one or the referrals to have a good one yeah 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 the medical model is an interesting one and it's something that i think caught a lot of us off guard because we were so used to that traditional you know talk therapy and just you know you know absence based and if you mess up you're out of here kind of stuff um are you seeing some some pushback from the industry versus some acceptance of this is the way it's going to have to be, or do you feel like no, it's pretty homeostatic? It's it's you know one and the same. No, it's being pushed all the time. I often will use the example of the medical field. Now you've seen the medical field make a huge transition to where um, I'll use this example. My daughter-in-law went in for heart surgery, uh, open heart surgery, and there was um, a glass window and a booth, a computer booth, right outside her, her door or her, her room. Mm -hmm. and, and that nurse sat there and watched her and recorded all of the things that were going on with her the entire time. Why mm -hmm. did that nurse do that? Oh. So they could get paid. Yeah. yeah. Right? So the insurance companies. I've seen that. Yes. When Marissa had to go to the hospital last yeah. month, they had a little cart that pushed them with her. And all that girl's job was typing everything that was being said and being done. Yeah take assessments you're going to take sometimes they come and do vitals they'll do an echocardiogram right mm -hmm. you are documenting everything that you're doing to prove that that person needs the care that you're providing mm -hmm. 
insurance companies are really smart. They've already done this before. We are moving towards that. And it won't be a total medical model because mental health is not medical. Right. Right. But there are medical aspects to it. And, and it's, you know, really to do a good job, we've got to move into that space and understand the whole person. Right. It's all of those pieces. So you see that frequently because, again, one of your major aspects of the job is to read charting, to look at those medical things, to advocate for payment through insurance. I mean, you have, I think, the world's hardest job. People don't realize how difficult that could <laughs> yeah. be. I can only imagine. Um, documentation is one of the things that every therapist and counselor everybody hates. Mm-hmm. But it is the absolute most critical aspect of that whole experience is to, if it's not, if it hasn't been written, it never happened. Even if you had the most amazing breakthrough, correct? Like it doesn't matter unless you write it down. Yeah. Well, it doesn't matter to the insurance because they're just looking at what are you doing? Have you documented it? And the interesting thing is, is when I went through school and, and blue, you tell me when you went through school, did they teach you how to do notes? Did they sit down and say, these are the things that should be in your notes? And if they did, it might have been one hour class. Yeah, yeah it, was a, it was a brief discussion uh-huh. about soap notes. Soap notes, yep. right. And it's like, what's a soap note and why am I writing it? Yep. Yeah. Um, it, well, and because we were handwriting everything, uh-huh. we tried to really minimize it all. Right. Mm-hmm. And here's what I'll tell you is you don't have to write a lot. But you do need to write Specifics. the most Im- the po- important pieces. Like this client cannot sit still. They cannot sit in therapy and manage their anxiety around any topic that brings up emotion, mm-hmm. right? And so that's pretty simple. You know, we, we touched on this topic, client was reactive, client started, you know, walking around the room and pacing and was shaking and, right? That's it. Yeah. You don't even have to write what you were talking about. Yeah. But you do have to write the reaction of that client so that you can show they're not stable. Right. They might be, you know, going and and talking with all of the other clients and they seem happy and all the staff is writing, yeah, client did really great. But the truth is they're not. Mm-hmm. Or they're coming to therapy and they really are scared and you can tell they're scared. I mean, things like mm-hmm. that. You're, you're talking about the symptomology that you see and the behaviors that they have. Right. And most people are never taught, most therapists are never taught how to document like that. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I have a question. A lot of you know, pay, clients, patients, or family, they pay the premiums to the insurance company. How much clout how much hearsay how much do they have to be able to contact the insurance company themselves a lot of them they don't know what it is so they just leave it up to the facility but i know that there's probably some things that they can do they call in and say i'm paying you what are their rights with some of that that's a great question and and it's a fine line yeah we've kind of you know if you've got a client going into rtc treatment Mm -hmm. it's not a good idea for them to call their insurance company and advocate for themselves because if they can do that they probably don't need residential treatment there you go good point right because the insurance company has now got this client on the phone and they're functional yeah just like clients that think they can go to residential care and they try to detox and uh taper at home yeah you know they want you sick Sadly, it, it's know, so but. true. Yeah, they tapered, they, they detoxed at home, and now they're coming to treatment. And they're like, yeah. yeah, but they've already detoxed. They've been sober for five days. They can do that at home now. They don't need residential. Right. Oh, man, catch 22. Yeah. It is. So so it's it's kind of tricky, but... Um, oh, shoot, what was the question Well, now? even just asking for maybe more care, can they call the insurance company right, themselves right. and say, I know I'm unsafe? Or can a family member who's on the policy... And typically, or- we'll have family members. It's not a bad idea to have family members call. It's, it's a different scenario, and some insurance companies will really listen, mm-hmm. and some insurance companies, it doesn't really matter. But when you can talk to the member side, so we always have to talk to the provider side of an insurance company. Mm-hmm. When a member calls, they talk to the member side, and those, you know, they value their members. They want to keep their members, and so they certainly have advocates for them. They have people that will help them. It doesn't always help the cause, but mm-hmm. it, it sure can, and I've seen it turn it around on, on some, in some cases. So, um, so yes, I think it's a good idea for them to advocate, but then, again, do they know what they're asking for? Yeah. Do they know what language to use, and are they yeah. going to make it better or worse? Right. 
Right. So it's, it's in and of itself, That's it's kind it. of a, I don't know, an obstacle course trying to make it mm -hmm. through without getting too damaged. Because if you say the right thing, there you go. If you say the wrong thing, you could be down in a hole that you'll never get out of. Yeah, because they don't forget. They record every call, just so you know. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Well, it makes sense. I mean, they're in the business to try and keep money, not give it away. Right. So I think that's important, too, then, because, you know, you're telling me that there's programs out there that could charge upwards of $60,000. Yeah. yeah, you know. With insurance or without insurance, I've seen that before where people walk through the door and the first thing they're like, hey, yeah, we can help. You got the right insurance, but now, you know, let's divvy out that, that six grand to get you through the door. Yeah. Mm -hmm. People just don't have it. Well, they don't. And and here's the great thing about that. And and that program that was 60000 that was cash pay. Those people are coming in with cash. They're not using They don't their need insurance. insurance. They don't. Yeah. So I can't even imagine. <laughs> yeah. That's not my world. Um, but people that... Um, that have deductibles and coinsurances. Most insurances have that, right? That's mm -hmm. the patient's portion that they need to be contributing. There are um, situations where a facility can do a hardship letter mm -hmm. and they can show that that person has no finances. They can't possibly cover that. The family can't cover that. So we're not going to collect it. And insurance companies will actually honor that as long as it's not every client that comes through the door. Right. Um, so there are some things, and, and I've seen insurance language come out that says, yes, you can do, you know, you can, uh, you can waive that. I mean, that's money to the facility. Mm -hmm. um, but there are situations where that can happen. And so knowing that that's an option, because how many people that have been active in their addiction for a long, long time? I think of the lady that was, yeah. you know, lived down on the Jordan River for seven years. Yeah. She doesn't have any money. She has yeah. zero money, but she can get maybe Medicaid or maybe mm -hmm. she can get on some, you know, some of the marketplace plans now. Mm -hmm. Thank goodness for, you know, for some of that. Yeah. Well, we, we got we were in the, in, in the industry when a when a company um, was giving out lots of treatment and they had to roll back. And it was interesting because I think it also exposed some over some overdoing it. You know, everyone all of a sudden that had this plan had treatment and it, it pretty much but I don't know if it bankrupted that insurance company, but it got close because everyone had this insurance and they paid pretty well. So I'm thinking there's whatever there's money, there's also the potential for abuse. And so we've got to teach these, these clients, these families to do their research, right? Um, sadly, Googling things aren't, it's not where it's at anymore. You know, you know, with, uh, with, with programs paying, you know, like their, for ISO to get their, you know, their, their websites up there. And for this new legit script thing that's supposed to be the gatekeeper, it's all about money. Um, you've got to do boots on the ground. You've got to go check these things out and ask some of the hard questions. Do, do, does, my, does my loved one have access to their chart? Can they see their treatment plan? How often is it reviewed? You know, like all these things, right? It's a, it's a steep learning curve. Well, it is, and I think it's interesting because the, we know that the best treatment is engaging the client. Right. What is the client's goals? If you're writing yeah. a treatment plan and that client didn't have anything to do with that, how is that helping? Exactly. How are they even going to know what their goals are for treatment if they're not part of that process? Mm -hmm. And I know it's harder because they may not know the answers, but mm -hmm. to be able to dig deep and, and sit with them and where are you and where do you want to be and what does that look like? Because mm -hmm. um, it's pretty clear a treatment plan that's written by a therapist and a treatment plan that's written with a client. Yeah. It's night and day difference. And it makes a huge difference on their full outcome. You know, a lot of facilities, I think, they have in their mind how they want clients to leave. And many are that 100% abstinent base. They have a job. They have, But maybe that's not what the client really wants. Maybe happiness for them really is, you know, on MAT. They're doing harm reduction. That They just get a part-time job and live at mom and dad's house. And that's okay for them. You need to find out what do they want. Meet them where they're at mm -hmm. and go from there instead of what you think the ideal perfect. Well, that's a pretty utopian is. idea, though. I know. You know, I mean, that's because again, every program has their own niche and their own, you know, like like I guess term for success, right? Yeah, but it should be it should be client centered. Client, client centered, absolutely. But there's 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 so much more meat on that bone. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, I I hear what you're saying, but I think as we're as we're getting close to to the time here. I'm, I just think that they need to do more research, you know, and how do they do research? What would you recommend for someone who just had a husband roll into the house and, and like, I need help? Where do they even start? 
That's a great question. I know that in Utah, anyway, Utah has this fantastic 211 resource that you can call, mm -hmm. and they have just a myriad of resources they can get you connected. But if you don't have that resource, call your insurance company. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And they, they have people that advocate and can help you kind of navigate where is it going to cost you the least amount of money? You know, who are we working with? Who do we know that's, you know, because the insurance companies know who's good and who's not. Right. Um, or at least as they, they monitor that. Um, other resources, go to your primary care doctor. Mm. And say, look, we need some help. Who do you know? How can, you know, where should we go from here? There are resources. You just have to start reaching out. Um, and you may have to reach out four, five, six, seven, eight times before you find someone that can really give you some good information. Mm -hmm. um, and then it depends. Do you have insurance? Don't you have insurance? Do you need to see a broker to get some insurance first mm -hmm. um, to help pay for that treatment? And is that even an option? And, you know, there's tons of questions there. And so getting someone that can help you and advocate for you is really important. Um, and maybe it's find a therapist that can help walk you through that right. that process, right? Somebody that can advocate for you. Yeah, yeah. I know we get lots of calls through Addict to Athlete, and you know we, we advocate for those things too because we know of many treatment centers that are fantastic, but we always say go check them all out. I'm not going to give a stamp of approval to any one of them. You go look at all four of these and you pick what's yeah. best for you. Get your a list needs. from your insurance where it's covered, and then mm -hmm. you go ask some of these other questions there. Get you know, if you can visit the facility, because you get a different feel than somebody, you know, that's a car salesman on the phone trying to sell you their treatment center. And yeah. they're very, very different. Isn't that the truth? Yeah. And, and the most important thing, I'll come right back to this, is that you can create rapport with somebody. Yeah. If you go into a treatment center and you can't connect with anybody there, mm -hmm. walk away. Right. Absolutely. Um, you know, what does the AA say? Come at least six times yeah. to see if this is a good fit. And if it's not, then let's find you a place that is, right? Mm -hmm. you got to give it a try, but at the same time, you've got to be able to create rapport and be able to ask for your needs. And, you know, the last thing a facility wants to do is have you say, look, this isn't working out for me mm -hmm. once they've got you in there. So yeah. that becomes, you know, again, you need an advocate. Yeah. And that's Absolutely. why yeah, you have to do what's best for you or your loved one, not, right. not the facility. Right. And know? facilities, I mean, facilities, the, the really reputable facilities out there, they want what's best for you. Yeah. And so you'll, you'll hear a different approach. You know, they may not like it, but they're like, we understand and we want to keep you in treatment. So let's find a place that works for you. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think that's, I think that is exactly where the starting point should be. We had a friend who, uh, anonymously was calling up a couple of programs that weren't so hot and it was interesting because all he wanted to know is who led the groups and what's their credentials what are they mm -hmm. are they are they substance use counselors are they you know master's level therapists and it was crazy because all the guy kept saying is well what's your insurance what's your insurance he just wanted the oh insurance number yeah to run it. so yeah. you'll you'll tell pretty quick if you get that used car feeling but you know sadly there's a couple of, of, of programs that have that have you know kind of tainted a lot of the other good ones and so do your research because there's a lot of good programs we're very lucky in utah we have a large variety of programs to choose from mm -hmm. and so we're real lucky but for you know do your research you know yeah. don't I, just and, and i'm grateful this year the you know healthcare.gov the marketplace is open until march or may 15th mm -hmm. it used to only be open november 15th to december 15th so if one, you're hearing this month. before you know may, uh, the end yeah. of may 2021 if, yeah you can get on to healthcare.gov you can call or find an insurance agent that can help you get a marketplace plan and if it's today march 9th your insurance would kick in april 1st uh -huh. if you do it before the 15th of the month your insurance starts at the first of the next month That's and good then to know. you can find and start looking at facilities and when you call that insurance and you're looking at plans find a plan that has substance abuse or mental health coverage. There are plans out there that don't. Exactly. And so if yeah. that's what you're looking for, you need to get yourself a plan that does have that. Well, and I'll put one more plug in. Since mm -hmm. the expansion of Medicaid, mm -hmm. um, if you don't have any income, you will qualify for Medicaid, and Medicaid is now covering substance abuse treatment. And so, awesome. you know, even if that's what you have, you can get treatment. There are mm -hmm. lots of facilities that, that accept Medicaid, Medicaid now. Medicaid. Yeah, yeah, and we know a, a, a couple of great doctors that, that are specializing mm -hmm. in addiction that take Medicaid. And so, yeah. community doctors. Doctors yep. and clinics. Yeah. So the help is out there. Just, just don't be worried to ask for help. That's the, one of the biggest things. If you, if you're Absolutely. feeling stuck, reach out. You know, for, through through Marissa or myself on Team Addict to Athlete, your physician. You know, shoot, call and and we'll help maybe guide you where you need to go. Yeah, and I can do those substance step. abuse assessments for court or if you're just looking for treatment and. 
then I can give you the recommendations and you can go choose yeah. what fits you. Absolutely. Shelly, thank you so much for spending some time with us today. It's been great. And this is going to be one of those ones that we'll have to bring you back on because I'm sure this will spark a lot of questions that uh, the, the athletes and families will have. Yeah, well, this has been a lot of fun and I'm pretty passionate about substance abuse. It was never my dream to be in substance abuse, but it calls to us, doesn't it? Yeah. It, it, it truly does. It really and, does. and you know, just even from, from a personal standpoint, um, great working with you and the billing company you, you guys made it so easy and you answer so many questions and so i just want to appreciate and thank you for all the work that you've done you've helped us a lot i remember talking to you about situations you're like well have you thought about this or that i'm like aha so it's kind of neat to have uh, an advocate on that side of uh you know of the whole industry so thank you so much for spending the time athletes you've been well fed um share this podcast with anyone who needs help in this direction i mean this will be a good resource for you to have kind of maybe downloaded on your phone so you can you know pass that on because it's uh there are questions that need to be answered and i want to give a special shout out and thanks to all of our patreon subscribers and of course let's give them all a shout out because they deserve it we've got our super fans jerem thurston holly davy scott foster coach chris williams brett fruit chelsea olson and donio dominic and of course the warrior within podcasts and personal development with sensei kp thank you so much super fans rookie level subscribers josh hansen kenny roseman earl dyer and joe jackson thank you rookies for all that you do for team medic to athlete our two pro level subscribers of course selena armitage and gary thurston you guys are absolutely rock stars and pro and also our championship level subscribers thank you so much this is the top tier that you can get on patreon and we have shad and freya robison and the robison family and ron and d loche thank you guys so much for being willing to support team addict to athlete as we strive to make this not just our career but also to raise awareness to help more people to get this message further to provide content that's going to help people overcome addictions and of course mental health issues so thank you so much if you'd like to become a patreon subscriber you can do so as little as $2 a month to get all of our bonus episodes and other perks and features and merchandise as, as you go up the, the scale of, of tiers. So, again, you can grab that on Addict to Athletes webpage or patreon.com forward slash addict to athlete. Thank you guys so much for all that you do for Team Addict to Athlete and specifically Radio Ronin and the Radio Ronin Network. Tons of podcasts that Radio Ronin has. There's some good ones there about self-help, some comedy, and even some music podcasts. So thank you, Radio Ronin and athletes. Until next time, go turn that mess into a message. <laughs>